happy holidays everyone one of the things we like to do most around the holidays is watch old cozy films and it's part of my family's holiday tradition that there are certain like classic black and white films that we watch on rotation and so we thought that would be kind of a fun festive thing to do with you all too even though it wasn't a, a christmas film in and of itself it actually made me feel quite festive yeah there's something about the classic films that just makes you feel cozier uh, it, I think. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast where queenship reigns supreme. We decided to watch The Private Life of Henry VIII, which was made in 1933. Apparently it's one of the first, like, British all-talking films. Like, that's not a musical. So it's quite old i think we both realize it's the oldest film that we've ever seen um yeah i think i think before that i think the oldest ones we've seen were like top hat or like the wizard of oz and snow white or something which all came out in what like 1935 like the late 30s yeah. yeah this is much earlier than that so it's cool for that reason too you know like as part of the history of film but for us on this podcast it's also interesting because it's one of the first if not the first dramatic adaptations of our queens for the screen i think there was a silent film potentially that came before this but this is one of the first like big cult pop cultural moments for our queens so we thought it would be fun to watch it to kind of see where maybe like some of these stereotypes begin no and i think the nice thing about this film as as you're here as we go through through it it was surprising um, some of the things that we were seeing, some of the ways the queens were portrayed, and also some of the you know, background detail that other people might not notice or think is inconsequential or something, that we very much enjoyed. But I think the thing it got us thinking about more than anything was the on-screen reputations, uh, representations of the six queens and where our set narrative of divorce, beheaded, died comes from, because... They didn't seem to have much bearing on this film. So when I first sort of went into this, I my main thing that I was watching for was, like you said, the tropes. They're so fully entrenched now that I thought it must be related to film, you know, like widespread media. And it has to start somewhere, so it probably started here. Because a lot of tropes about Henry VIII, for instance, I know come from this film you know, watching it, I, I that's what I expected. And that's not what we got. We got tropey representations of women, but not the tropes that I expected to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. The film itself is not that long. It's an hour and 30 minutes. So you get a roller coaster of, of things going on in that hour and 30 minutes. Of course, though, the, the main idea of the film, the whole plot of it, is Henry's marriages. It's called The Private Life of Henry VIII, and it focuses on his quest to find the perfect wife. He's portrayed somewhat accurately, I guess, in its own way, as this romantic who's also kind of a womanizer, but he still has 
a couple of lines where he indicates that he just wants to be happy and in love and settle down and everything. So that kind of does fit with Henry's quest. You know, he, he wants to be happily married and he wants to be in love. He enjoys the game of courtly love, but he is, quote, unlucky from his perspective. But yeah, no, that was the kind of little detail that to me suggested the presence of some nerdy person behind the camera. Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, you know what we should do? <laughs> there were um, lots of little details like that though like in the characterization of everybody that i really liked but it didn't necessarily transcend to the queens all the time there were a lot of surprises with the queens yeah when we first started watching the movie it starts with a kind of narrative like text on screen filling you in and it actually begins in 1536 with Anne Boleyn's execution, which really surprised me because usually when you see Tudor films, it tends to be all the great matter, you know, Catherine of Aragon versus Anne Boleyn really hyped up. And then we quickly move through all the other ones. But this was actually the opposite. It focused on the later years of the reign. And so poor Catherine of Aragon, um, we don't have much to say about her because neither did the film. The first thing you see in the film is literally a title card that says that Catherine of Aragon is, quote, of no particular interest. And she's a, quote, respectable woman. So Henry divorced her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we're both sitting there. We're reading it like, pardon? So I was really surprised that this film seemed to focus on what they thought would be more of like the fun, raunchy history. And Catherine of Aragon is, quote, so respectable that A, she's not included in the film. And B, they use that as the reason why Henry actually divorces her because like she's boring, I guess. She's a prude, so we, we don't want her. Let's get let's get the reason for the film and, you know, why Henry's so interesting out of the way and let's get into the fun stuff and they don't really waste any time with it you know like you said they, they start with Anne's execution and that's also quite interesting that how how they go about it because um again it doesn't really fit with the narrative that that we get told they didn't do too much characterization of her I thought and what they did do actually was very positive like more positive than I would have thought like even though I, I believe they made clear that she was being executed for um a, you know quote adultery they also made clear that she was set up for it and then they made her really um kind of heroic and she was very graceful about accepting her death of course we have the quote about um having a little neck it, it's kind of it's martyry in the way that Catherine of Aragon usually is portrayed she's a victim yeah and I, I liked the way that they did it as well by having courtiers talking about it. And yeah, um, and they didn't really linger on it too long. They didn't make it a gruesome execution or anything like that. It was everything was implied right down to the French executioner with the biggest broadsword I've ever seen um, that was bigger than he was. And he was just swinging it about over his head. Made of styrofoam, no doubt. <laughs> You're not telling me the skinny man they had to play him wasn't like the strongest man you've ever seen. <laughs> less less enamored with their portrayal of Jane Seymour. Well, it took us a minute to work out that it was meant to be Jane, didn't it? Yeah, and until somebody said definitively that it was Jane, I wasn't entirely sure. And the way that they framed it, I thought was interesting, where Henry and Jane were, I mean, accurately, 
waiting around to hear the um the cannons announce the death of Anne Boleyn, which again a nice detail that clearly there was a nerd there to, to let them know that that's what happened. But then Jane, while that was happening, so it was like this solemn moment and kind of an eerie moment of like we're waiting to hear the cannons. Jane is running around trying to get Henry to like look at her wedding dress, and she's this like empty-headed, like really young-looking, just ditz. Yeah, the thing that stood out for me was her sitting on Henry's lap, giggling, and then saying, do you like the 21 buttons on my dress? That's how old I am. Yeah, no, she was in her late 20s (laughs) and more mature. Like, that's so, it's weird because Jane's trope is usually that she's quiet and she's reserved, whether or not you think that's her personality or that in itself is like really intelligent political strategy. I've never seen any account or read any fiction or whatever that shows her as being like stupid. That's completely new. I've never seen that before. Oh, actually, she's quite annoying in the way that she was. They they chose to portray her, and I, we've spoken about it on this show before. That a lot of the time, when you think about Jane, you think of her as the anti Anne. I do, I don't even think you know with that brief representation of Anne that you had of her, you could even consider that that the way they portrayed Jane to be an anti Anne. It was just. I guess you kind of can because Henry does have a moment where he says something about Anne was intelligent and Jane Uh... was refreshing because she was so empty headed. I don't have to deal with any of that like intellectual complexity anymore now that Anne is gone. He made some comment like that, which I guess does make sense for that kind of narrative. And, And everyone like within the film even commented about how annoying she was. So it's not just us. <laughs> it's going to sound awful, but I'm glad it was short because she was frustratingly portrayed. And for whoever the history nerd was or whoever wrote the script on there, they were not kind about Jane, which again is interesting because I think the amount of true propaganda you end up with about her, about her being, you know, Henry's one true love and, you know, he was the only woman, she was the only woman Henry ever loved. You, you never usually have a bad word. Nobody ever has a bad word to say about her. And again, I think her death was equally interesting because you didn't see it. He's not even sad about it. He's like, you get a brief moment of, oh, poor, what was it? Yeah. And he's like, like where's my son? Yeah. Oh, that was it. Poor little fool. Thank you. And he's like, mm, where's my son? And then that's it. She's not mentioned again. Right. It's very quick. I mean, like you said, we only have 90 minutes here, so we gotta we gotta roll forward. Yeah, then he walks in to see Edward, who, this was the other thing we were laughing at, was they swapped the babies. So, like, the original shot of Edward, newborn Edward, was actually a newborn child, like a very tiny infant. And then all of a sudden, he's grown, like, two months, and it's a completely different <laughs> child the next time Henry sees him. Well, that was the other interesting thing, because from the point he was told Jade had given birth to the time he gets back, she's already dead. So there's yes. about a 9 to 12 day period where he was off somewhere else. <laughs> Traveling and Edward's <laughs> growing exponentially like the baby in Twilight. <laughs> it was hilarious. No, but then, yeah, Henry basically just attributes Jane's usefulness to, oh, okay, look, I have a son now. That's great. And poor Jane, that sucks. But hey, look, there's a baby here now. <laughs> and we basically never talk about Jane ever again. No, never. And then the negotiations begin for Anne of Cleves. 
the interesting thing that's happening as kind of a subplot now and in the background is that you have this very beautiful, refined, kind of scheming, politically <sighs> adept woman who's talking about how now it's a free-for-all now. Now that the queen is dead, anyone can be queen. And even a, just a random girl at court might have aspirations to be queen. You don't have to be a princess necessarily, because at this point, Henry has married two ladies-in-waiting, which was an interesting observation, because obviously our six queens are very unusual for the fact that many of most of them are English. The thing that I didn't like about this was that that woman, that really mature, politically adept woman, was Catherine Howard. Yeah, she was bubbling along from the start, wasn't she? She was part yeah. of um, Jane's odd. Like, she starts making eyes at Henry before even Henry and Jane are married. We have Back many off. problems with this. This is yeah. weird. This does not work. The, the, the woman who plays her is an older actress. I'd say she's probably, she looks about 30. And to me, it played much more like Anne Boleyn. Um, yeah. Like, even like you know, the Natalie Dormer and Boleyn, where she's just kind of quietly there and she's putting herself in the position to be noticed. And she's flirting, but like quietly so. And then she has um, Thomas Culpepper hanging around who, you know, is clearly in love with her and just kind of follows her around wherever she goes. Oh, he's like, like a little lovesick puppy in this. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. But like, when the negotiations are happening for who's Henry going to marry next and we're talking about Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard is there like, oh, at the banquet, let me sing a song for you. And there's this whole little like little musical number where she sings on her lute. And because we know that Catherine Howard, even though she was at court around the time that Anne of Cleves was coming over and Henry probably did notice her, it was because she was like, fun and lively and youthful and not this like kind of sultry like very mature feminine woman it was very confusing and then from sort of that point on you kind of see henry's marriages both from his point of view and from hers from catherine howard's because catherine howard's on this quest apparently to become queen again and very anne boleynish but she's having to endure all this talk about Henry sending away for a German princess. And of course, you know, that's what happens. Anne was another one who kind of, she both played into the trope that I expected, but then she ended up being very surprising because she was fantastic. I, I kind of, I really liked her actually. So at first I was like, Oh God. And rolling my eyes because they did portray her as the kind of funny foreigner, like, uh, she reminded me of, like, the kind of Dutch milkmaid trope. Like, she was very, like, sing-songy, and she had, like, two pigtail braids and weird hats, you know, just, and kind of, like, funny, you know? Like, when she first meets Henry in Rochester, she does this weird, like, dancey walk thing that just looks really bizarre, you know? So that, that fit into it perfectly. That bit, I think the thing that was so surprising, and I bet we we enjoyed, I think, was um, seeing Anne of Cleves in love while still in Cleves um, as being yeah. promised to somebody else. That was interesting. That was fun. There's a scene of them, like, sitting in a field of tulips and, like, cuddling and like, oh, no, I now I have to go to England and it's going to be horrible. I didn't really think too much of it other than it was interesting and funny until we got to the end of the Anne of Cleves storyline because that's where it got surprising. And... 
through playing a game of cards with Henry on their on their wedding night, revealed that all of that stuff that we had hated had been a ruse so that Henry would divorce her and she could be a wealthy divorced woman who gets to live with her boy toy. It was fantastic. I loved that card scene Genius. so much. Do I think it's historically accurate? Not no. at all. But seeing her actually be politically savvy was awesome in, yeah. in any form. And I definitely didn't expect to see it in 1933. No. I just loved that it was such, we both were just so taken aback that they were playing cards. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm running out of money to, you know, pay you i owe you a lot of money and i i'm running out of things to give you to settle the debt and she's like well you know you could give me like this servant in my household i want richmond palace and she starts <laughs> listing off all these things that she gets of course in the annulment settlement and you're like what <laughs> like oh she's been planning this the whole time and it's it's funny because it's kind of meta in the sense that when i first saw anne acting very stereotypically German and like doing her funny little dances and everything I was like oh this is 1933 English film making fun of German people so it's yeah. almost what I expected uh it was sort of on the nose humor of that's how she was acting in order to make Henry dislike her so much that she could get out of the marriage well she was making that strange little face wasn't she she looked yeah. like one of like the like what is it in the Grinch the who's yeah, and like tilting her head to the side and kind of grimacing at things. And when she first curtsied to him, there was this whole little like dance that went with it and everything. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, that's not very nice to German people. And then it's, oh, she's playing on that in order to just be extremely unattractive. Also, it was also surprising for me because the interesting sort of trivia that I read before we watched the film was that the actor who plays Henry, Charles Lawton, is married to the actress who plays Anne of Cleves, Elsa Lancaster, and that this film was sort of specifically kind of commissioned for them so they could be in a film together. So I thought that their relationship was going to be played up more. And so to see her kind of be like, you know, play it so funny um, instead of more dignified, I was I was really surprised by that. But actually, it was the big kind of fun surprise of the film they did show the friendship between henry and anne uh, like the scene where they're playing cards was the first time i think that henry was like oh okay this is kind of a cool lady and he says something to the degree of like you're definitely the most fun wife that i've had i'm not physically attracted to you and that's a big problem but you're fun at least and i enjoy hanging out with you after catherine howard's execution there's a scene of henry and anne kind of having BFF talk about like who are you going to marry next and Anne kind of plays matchmaker for him and Catherine Parr she suggests that he look for somebody like Catherine Parr who's like a little bit calmer than a Catherine Howard type which A didn't happen but B is actually kind of nice because it shows that Anne stuck around and she was part of Henry's inner circle <laughs> she didn't disappear when they got when they were no longer married <gasps> who would have thunk it but then when Anne is sufficiently out of the way, living her best life with her German love, Catherine Howard finally gets her hour. And it's weird. Like, if I didn't know anything about any of this, 
I would think it was a good story because the way that the script shows it is like Anne Boleyn in the sense that this is kind of the great love of his life and the love that he fights for. He's been in love with Catherine for a while. There's a scene where he actually um, goes to her room, like he tries to sneak to her room. And of course, it's court. So there are a thousand servants everywhere and it's not secret at all. But yeah, and they, you know, they do like a very 30s on screen kiss where they like kind of just mash their faces together for a minute. And it's supposed to be this kind of like heartbreaking love of like, oh, he's this is his true love, but he can't be with her because he has to marry this funny German lady. But now that the funny German lady's gone, they can finally be together. And now this is Henry's like real marriage. It's weird because obviously we know that's not what happened. At this point, Henry was aging. Um, he was, I would say he was having his midlife crisis, but it's more like his 75% life crisis. And yeah. Catherine was kind of the breath of fresh air. For him, she was young and fun and flirty and brought that youthful energy to court. Whereas this Catherine Howard is much more regal and much more dignified and politically savvy. And I think coming straight off the back of the Anne of Cleves marriage and, you know, what we'd just seen, it was very serious. And it was almost, I think, meant to be almost quite intense. It's not Catherine Howard, which... I didn't like because it was so jarring, but I did like because it wasn't the usual Catherine Howard is, you know, this dumb, slutty girl. Yeah, I think I think that's the key thing, for, that it is jarring because we're just not used to it. It was a strange choice to highlight Catherine Howard's political savvy as, you know, the 17-year-old the rather, than, rather than anybody else's. But... I thought it was also interesting the fact that they chose her to focus on as the love of Henry's life because we don't get that. No, and the main drama of the film became her betrayal of him. Um, they show her falling in love with Thomas Culpepper behind the scenes and Henry finds out about it and he's betrayed. You know, that all checks out. But the betrayal is supposed to be, uh, yeah, kind of the like the loss of the great love of his life. And it's that's the main kind of plot of the movie like we we see more of Catherine Howard than we see of any of the other queens all the other ones are very tropey and just because they're not the tropes that we would usually associate with the queens doesn't mean that they're not sort of typecast in that way just to kind of round it out to bring Catherine Parr into that we made the joke while we were watching it of like we can't wait to see the you know elderly woman that they got to play Catherine because she is usually portrayed as the older nurse coming in at the end of Henry's life. They didn't do that, but they did an interesting version of it where the first time we see Catherine Parr is through a window. Uh, like we said, Anne of Cleves points out to her of like a, you know, how about this one kind of thing. And she's already being shown as a mother to Henry's children. She's out in the garden playing with Edward and Elizabeth. And Henry thinks, Ooh, yeah, good. This would be a good one because she's clearly a very mature woman. She already likes my kids. That's what I need after the heartbreak of Catherine Howard. The movie ends with this scene of Henry and Catherine sitting in front of the fire. And Henry is trying to, like, eat all of his favorite fattening foods. And Catherine is like, no, you shouldn't do that because it's unhealthy. And she's just, she's talking, 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 talking as if it's like the kind of classic stereotypical, like, wife ball and chain kind of thing she's very domineering 
and Henry kind of clearly regrets his choice. And the last line of the film is he breaks the fourth wall. He looks right at the camera and he says, six wives and the best of them's the worst. But I, I suppose it kind of fits with the idea, you know, if you really want to square peg round hole it of, you know, she's a nursemaid, so she's going to tell him what to do to try and, you know, it's very matron-esque. But it did, yeah, hers, hers did not fit my expectation of Catherine Parr. And I think between the two of us, I think we've become quite protective over Catherine Parr, especially in the recent series. So um, that was quite an interesting representation to watch play out. And she's literally only on the screen for about five, ten minutes. She's not there for long. The thing that I kind of got with the Catherine Parr one was... There is a reference in John Fox that I think we've talked about before of Henry disliking Catherine for kind of being preachy um, because they like to have their kind of lively theological debates and they like to have all these intellectual conversations with each other. And Henry said something, I'm sure this isn't actually a real quote, but this is kind of what Fox reports. He says something to the degree of Catherine sounds like a school teacher. Uh, she's she's lecturing him about stuff and obviously you can't do that if you're a woman you shouldn't be lecturing your husband on anything so it's not completely out of left field in the way that like Jane Seymour and Catherine Howard were but at the same time it's not what I expected all in all as I was watching the film and I mean obviously because we are the hosts of this show I was looking at the queens specifically I was trying to figure out what the tone of the film was because I thought that would help me kind of figure out how they decided to portray all the queens, but I never figured it out because this film was all over the map in terms of, is it a comedy? Is it a romance? Is it a drama? Uh, I think it was just hard to establish the tone with all of the queens. What are they trying to get across here? It was It was all over the map. Not to sound like I know anything about film, because I absolutely don't. Um, so please don't take what I'm about to say as I do know anything. But maybe that's kind of the point, that they're all so completely different. Lots of different personalities and lots of different lots of different things going on. I, I could be completely wrong, but... No, that kind of makes sense, because the other sort of major plot of the film was this idea of Henry trying to find the, quote, perfect wife and it being a case of trial and error. So that they all had to have very distinct personalities in order to make that work. And there's not enough time to really dig into the nuances of any of them. It is all over the place. Make no mistake of that. You will feel like you get whiplash watching it because, like we said, it's 90 minutes. But you spend a long time of that 90 minutes with Catherine Howard. And it's like, okay, also, Anne Cleves, Catherine Powell, like the pacing of it feels off, which might also affect what you're saying about the tone of it as well again it's weirdly specific on some points but so vague on other points all in all though i think surprising because you know we've been saying this over and over there were a lot of surprises in the way that they were portrayed and we talked about it we both when we were planning this and we said oh you know what we should do for the christmas special we should watch this film it was because we fully expected to go into this and see the origins of all of the tropes that we talk about so often on the show and it's not what we got at all <laughs> but then that kind of got us thinking of, of where these come from because it definitely wasn't in the 30s 
So these are coming in a lot later. And which... now I think we need to do like a journey through film where like we just we go in uh, chronological order to see, you know, where all of these tropes first come in. Well, I mean, I'm not mad about that. And I mean, if you get the popcorn, I'll get the wine and I'll meet you on an airplane somewhere. But <laughs> but yeah, so definitely um, a surprise and an interesting version of all of our queens for us to kind of chew on. I'm going to give it a solid 8 out of 10, mainly for its levity. Yeah, as long as and you it's... don't take it too seriously, 8 out of 10. Yeah, it's don't don't watch of historical accuracy. Well, do I take it for its historical accuracy where the main narrative is concerned? Because as we've been hinting at the whole way through, there's this little historical nerd elf type person working on this film who got their way with so much stuff that we really enjoyed in a way that you don't get to see very much anymore and stuff that's so tiny that only fellow nerds will see it and be like hey look there's that hey look there's that they never mention it it's just sometimes it's just there in the background and you have to pause and be like is that what i think it is you know is that yes it's a both at portcullis (laughs) Is that that Beaufort Porcullis? And do they have historically accurate heraldry on the fireplace? Wow. And it's the kind of little stuff that you, like you said, you don't get because it's the kind of attention to detail that filmmakers aren't really care. They don't really care about anymore. But some somewhere, somebody on staff here was like, you know, it would be cool to include. And they got their way. And thank God they did. Oh, we were living for it. I don't really know where to start. I really enjoyed the peanut gallery-esque background characters who were yes. all the servants uh, the, the working people of the court so the movie starts out showing them so you see a bunch of ladies in waiting and then you see this like nurse character um, not based on any one real person but she's this nurse who's kind of the common thread between all of the rest of the queens and she's making the marriage bed they're taking all of the h and the a's off of the marriage bed and they're replacing it with h and j's and she's expositing um about ambulance about to die we're getting a new queen and you have the ladies in waiting carrying the thread of it could be anyone it could be any of us i just really like the attention to detail there of how they must have been reacting to things kind of had like a upstairs downstairs feel to it oh no i really liked that as well because even today gossip is gossip right you know if you're not going to pass on the opportunity to in an age without netflix this is all you're getting and i think it was quite nice it was kind of showed the human nature of people and the way court operated yes it was a place of business but it was also a place of entertainment and gossip as well And just because you're not a noble person or an aristocrat does not mean you're not engaging in that gossip. And that was quite nice the whole way throughout, I think. You know, like you said, you had the the ladies in waiting and but also even at at Anne's execution, people talking about her and about the situation and about whether or not she was an adulterer or not. And stuff. Still sad though, isn't it? So there's a very there's a very real people element to it, which is fantastic. 
our favorite ones though by far were the ones that were in the kitchens yes um that was so cool because the first thing we said was hey aren't those the uh hampton court kitchens because if you're a nerd for you know looking at all these places like we are there's some really cool shots of hampton court and the tower in the 30s which you know just cool in general they look the same which is the cool thing but yeah, they actually filmed these scenes in the Hampton Court kitchens. If you have been there, then you will recognize them within a millisecond. And it has the chaos that would be in the kitchen. It's not like this happy little domestic scene. It's like there are people plucking geese and feathers are going everywhere. There are people who, um, there are men who don't have their shirts on because it's so hot in the kitchen and they're working so hard. And then, yeah, you have the them gossiping about the plot. It's to help people who don't know the history understand what's going on in the plot. But it doesn't feel like that. You know, it doesn't feel awkward or no. like that because it's people actually just gossiping about it in the way that they would while they go about their work. And it's just so well done. Not in a sort of uh, patronizing, like, for the 30s, it's well done kind of way. It no. actually genuinely is well done, well, good writing. Well, I liked the chaos of it, too. So even if people weren't saying anything, you know, they went in with the extras. Like, there were just people everywhere. It was chaotic, but it was organised chaos in the way that the kitchens at Hampton Court would have been. Everybody knew what they were doing. Everybody had their job. So they were sticking to it. But it was just full of people. And they had the fireplaces on as well which we, we both mentioned, like, oh, it's cold. Like, well, I wouldn't give her a fireplace like that right now. Um, but yeah, it, it, but, it got it right. Which it's, again, it's the, I liked how you called them the, uh, the history elf that was working behind the scenes said, um, excuse me, you know, that actually it would have been really hot in these kitchens. So even, you know, like I've been there in the middle of January before in layers of winter clothing. And as soon as you get into the kitchen where there's this ginormous blazing fireplace that's on all the time because they have to do the cooking, it's so incredibly hot in there. And now if you're actually there doing work and not as a tourist, just imagine how much hotter it is in there. You can understand then why some of the extras in the background, they have their little like, you know, court dress on with nothing on top because and they're they're clearly very sweaty as they like you know cleave their meat or whatever i was like that's just such a lovely detail that they never acknowledge but people like us are like oh hey look <laughs> we appreciate you it it almost felt like the kitchen was in touching just within touching di distance you know and, and it was just it was nice to see it brought to life in a way that you can only usually imagine sort of going off of that point of court feeling busy the other thing that i liked small detail was uh we touched i, I mentioned it in the first half but there's a, a sequence where henry is sneaking to Catherine howard's room for a tryst and very sort of comically realizes that because there are so many there's so much staff around and you know he's being followed by attendants and bodyguards and whatever there's actually no sneaking involved so like he's trying to be all like quiet and clever and there are just people everywhere who are watching this happen i love that because yes it's funny but also it's completely true there is no sneaking at court there are so many people who attend henry constantly he is never alone so everyone would have known eventually that henry's been sneaking to somebody's room and 
we talked about this before in this season actually even when it was known like henry was going to you know visit his wife's room or something his attendants would follow him there they would wait patiently for everything to be over and then they would all walk back together to his room that's just how court was and they didn't think it was funny but obviously we we kind of do so to see that kind of like on the nose joke was really funny oh no i enjoyed that i liked the bit where he got towards Catherine howard's door and he just kind of grabbed this man and was like stop it <laughs> um because like you said like you know you said um we think it's funny but it's the only time the monarch's ever not attended is when he's with his, or the king's not attended is when he's with his wife and vice versa. There's not much people didn't know. It trickles through the grapevine eventually, which again, you, you get because there are all the ladies in waiting and the people in the kitchen gossiping about this. So you can kind of see how it all works. The other character we both really liked we were talking about because she kind of fits into one of our episodes this season was the nurse. Um, oh, yes. Mentioned her a minute ago, but she's not supposed to be any one particular historical figure that I can make out. But she's this, like, I don't even know what her job would be. They show her doing all sorts of random things. But she's supposed to kind of be the, the everyman mouthpiece, and she's a bit of comic relief. They show her, like, making a bed. They show her taking care of Edward. But the interesting thing about her is that she's an older woman. She's clearly supposed to be kind of like a funny, feisty older woman. And she is the only person who kind of gives Henry what for. But I think it's mentioned that she's his nurse, Henry's nursemaid from when he was growing up. So she has that relationship with him where she can kind of poke at him a little bit, but it's within her right to do it. Uh, kind of like, you know, you're like the sassy grandmother in Mulan or something, you know, she, she she has that ability to kind of break that wall and say what she really thinks, which was interesting because we know that that's not entirely unfounded. Henry um, had his wet nurse, for example, at his coronation. We talked about how there was that interesting role between royal children and the nursemaids, the women who actually did the raising of them. So an interesting little detail, like... Um, films like this always need an everyman figure to kind of help you connect with the elusive royal figures. But it's interesting that they chose this one because it is accurate in its own way. I really liked her. I liked the scene where Henry has Edward in the garden surrounded by a, a large group of uh, lady courtiers all cooing over him. And she waddles up to him. And she's like, you've got him outside without a sun hat on. And she snatches Edward off of Henry in quite a public way and then takes him back inside and again like to your point no one bats an eyelid because that's her job and is she also there telling off courtiers as well she's putting like magical charms under the pillows to help with uh the conception of edward and one of them goes to tell her off and i think she says something along the lines of well you didn't let me in here with the first two and look no boys were there. I got in here for the third one and look what happened. And he just kind of walks off and leaves her to it because, again, demonstrating her, this is her domain and child-bearing, child-rearing, child-creating is, is, is what she does. So don't get in her way because she's got a lot more knowledge about it. But I liked the fact she was there to tell them off. 
And again, it's a bit caricature but these were women not to be trifled with. But kind of caricature in a delightful way, because as the person who isn't royal and who doesn't quite play by rules or etiquette, she's allowed to do fun things that people did do, like slip the magic charms under the pillows and show that the king doesn't know the first thing about raising a child and you know all these all these little kind of wink wink nudge nudge jokes that are funny because they're accurate like you said a comic relief figure so you can almost dismiss her and i think that's kind of the point right do you want to tell them about the crib oh yeah so this was my favorite little <laughs> this... like nerd <laughs> detail uh, we talked about yours was the beaufort portcullis above the yes. uh, above the fireplace and all the all the heraldry around that was very accurate my favorite one that was like just so again so so small that only the nerdiest of nerds would know when when edward's born and you see this is the funny bit where they're like there's multiple babies playing edward within 30 seconds they show him laying in a cradle and it has the Prince of Wales insignia, like the ostrich feathers and the motto and the heraldry and everything on the back of the cradle. And they never address it. It's just kind of there in the background. And you know that some prop guy had to make it specifically for this one small scene. And I loved it. I was just listening to you just then when you were like, your favorite bit was the heraldry and all of that bit. And I was like, my God, I sound boring. <laughs> Well, then I said my favorite yeah. bit was this prop with the Prince of Wales's <laughs> crest on it. So it's like, I don't sound any better. But no, I, I just, it all fit together so nicely. And I think the other thing I really liked is the use of dates in the scenery. When you first meet Anne, when she's at the Tower of London, um, Anne Boleyn, sorry, when you first meet her when she's at the Tower of London, there's, um, it says over the door that she goes out of to meet her executioner, AD 1536. And I was sitting there for most of that scene thinking, what was built? Like, this wasn't built in 1536. And it took me a minute to work out that they were pushing the dates up there where Anne, Anne was executed. And they did it for Catherine Howard as well. Yeah, subsequently throughout the film, every time there was any kind of significant time jump, they showed it as part of the scenery, uh, like over a door or yeah. in the corner somewhere. It would say like, you know, yeah, 80, 15, 42 or whatever, which was a clever way to do it instead of putting a, a time like a or a, um, a like a narrative card up. But it was, I really enjoyed it because it was like they were trying to help you along in the film, but they didn't want to interrupt the film. I'm trying to think of um, other little things that I liked. Um, of course, on, if we're on costume watch, the costumes were not horrible. There were some women's costumes that were a little weird, like... They never quite figured out what era they were supposed to be in. Um, like Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn both had the kind of classic Tudor square neckline French hood outfits. And Anne Boleyn had her bee necklace, so you knew who she was pretty pretty clearly. The rest of them, though, it varied. There were lots of different styles, but it didn't completely throw me for some reason. Uh, Anne of Cleves had some funky headdresses going on, which I guess because they're supposed to be Germanic, made sense. 
so the women it was a bit all over the place but oddly enough there were so many other little things that i loved that i didn't really dwell on the inaccuracies in the costumes i think the best effect for the costumes was um charles lawton as henry he he looked perfect but he got the gate right, I think. And when I say he got the gate right, it looked like he stepped out of that Holbein painting, that that very, very famous one of hands on hips and just kind of a very physically dominating man. Yeah, um, and a- I liked too that the costume department wasn't afraid of padding his costume as well, Ooh. which I don't see very often. Like, I think a lot of actors are really sensitive to playing like fat Henry VIII, you know, in quotes. Like, I remember Damian Lewis before Wolf Hall gave this very lengthy interview basically defending historically why he wouldn't be wearing a fat suit. But Charles Lawton actually got into character in the sense that they padded his costume, which, you know, Henry's costumes would have been padded in addition to just his body. Um, to make him have that kind of gravitas, that physical presence. So it really comes across. It's It was really good. And then all the rest of them were a bit hodgepodge with what era is it? Like, I can't remember who it was. Was it Jane Seymour walked out in a dress and we both were like, it's very kind of like Princess Aurora-y. Um, it's yeah, like, is, yeah, it was is a it wedding medieval? dress. <laughs> is, is it medieval? Is it fantasy? We don't know. Um, but I think, too, honestly, it being for me in black and white, I didn't focus on the clothing as much um, because I couldn't see it as well. And then uh, Cromwell was there, and the only reason we really knew it was him was because he looked lizardy enough. Uh, so we're like, oh, okay, that's Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> the lizardy. The Lizardy Frollo type that looked a little yes. bit. <laughs> yes, and, and Cranmer was just kind of quietly shuffling behind them everywhere in his, his clerical robe. So that, <laughs> there he is. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I think that is our hot take on this. I, again, pleasantly surprising. Yeah, if definitely, you know, this. I think this episode's going to come out when we're still well into the holiday season. So if you are bored and you're kind of done with actual holiday films and you just need something cozy to watch i would definitely recommend it i think it's fun there i'm not usually a big one for historical fiction because i am that like kind of annoying pedantic person who will sit and correct it while we watch it and i didn't find myself doing it through this film it was like fun enough and light enough that i didn't care so if you're like me then you actually get to enjoy this one for what it is and yeah and it's fun just to honestly see a film that's older than anything I've ever seen before. Just, you know, what was filmmaking like in its earliest days? That in itself is fun. Yeah, I think the black and white helps you spend, suspend the disbelief. And I think it just helps you let go a little bit more and just enjoy it rather than, like you said, just be like, oh, that bit's not right. Or no, I'm going to turn it off in a minute. I can't cope with this anymore, which I know we both have done. It's very easy to watch and it's a very easy way to spend an hour and 30 minutes. So yeah, as, as Kate said, if, if, you, if, you Christmas, if you Christmas movied yourself out, there's nothing else left to watch. Or even if you don't want a Christmas movie um, or are sick of board games over Christmas, give this a go.
so yeah this episode hopefully uh if all goes well is coming to you uh at the end of 2023 and we just before we go wanted to say a quick thank you for listening um and following us throughout the year it feels like we've done a lot this year and it's been a lot of fun um but we are still quite a young podcast we're still kind of on our our growing legs so thank you for helping us through another year and letting us do this because it's fun it's been so much fun i've really liked this year motherhood was fun and i think it's been so nice to kind of see some so many kind of returning faces come back to us and people that keep coming back season after season um for the last four seasons um and people that have found us and that are new to us Callie pointed out before we started recording that it's been a while since I did my Eurovision yes. <laughs> reading out of all of the countries where we have listeners. So I wanted to do that real quick because she's right. It has been a while and the list, I haven't done it because the list has actually grown. So happy to say that we are on every continent now. We have listeners coming to us all from all around the world. So hello to all of you. And yeah, I'll go down the list. And so if you hear your country represented, just know that we are thanking you for making us such a worldwide thing. So we have listeners in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, Argentina, Spain, United Arab Emirates, Belgium, Ireland, Norway, Brazil, the Philippines, Sweden, Denmark, India, Paraguay, Thailand, Albania, France, Serbia, Singapore, New Zealand, Mexico, Switzerland, Israel, Malaysia, Poland, South Africa, Japan, Pakistan, Portugal, Barbados, Guernsey, Chile, Cyprus, Estonia, Greece, Indonesia, Italy, Jordan, Turkey, Bulgaria, Costa Rica, Finland, Jamaica, Latvia, Lithuania, Myanmar, Puerto Rico, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, Taiwan, Zambia, Hong Kong, and the Cayman Islands. And Brie, well done. Well done. Oh, That's sorry. a hell of a list. That list has grown a lot since this time last year. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in 2024 with more. We still have one episode to go in the Motherhood series. It's another special. It will be coming to you soon. And then we are going to start planning for series five, which haven't quite decided on the theme. I think we have a pretty good idea. We might make it um, a vote. We might get you guys involved to help us decide, but we shall see. Uh, but it's definitely coming and it's one that we're excited about. So you'll have a hard time getting us to stop talking about it. It's definitely coming. So yeah, as we close out the year, thank you so much for all your support. And hopefully you'll stick around and we'll see you next year. Have a safe and happy holidays. Yes, everybody enjoy the rest of the holiday season. Uh, we certainly will. And see you soon. <laughs>